It was the Lord's Day, and I was worshipping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches. Hey, good morning. You know, I've always loved a story. When I was a kid, some of my earliest memories are of my mom opening a storybook and, and reading me a story. And I love that. I, and to this day, you know, on a weekend, if I'm doing a talk and it's about a character where I can tell you a story, it's the favorite kind of sermon that I have to deliver. Just for all of you New Springers, if you think back to the series Thrive, each week I was telling you the story of Joseph. And I don't have any more fun preaching than when I get to tell you a story. You know, I love the, the weaving of the narrative, the protagonist, the antagonist, the conflict and the climax and the resolution and all the things that are part of a story. I, re I really love that. You know what's interesting today is that every one of us has a story. Every human being has a story. I've learned that through the years being a pastor because I've conducted probably, well, several hundred funerals in the years that I've been here at New Spring. And oftentimes I'll conduct a funeral for somebody that I thought I knew especially an elderly person. You know, I would know them as an elderly person. But if you've ever been part of planning a funeral, maybe with your family, you know that everybody comes, you know, there's cousins and aunts and uncles and grandkids and grandparents and just people come from all over and you sit down together and you begin to weave together the story of that person's life. And often I'm sitting there with a pen and a, and a legal pad trying to catch it all. And, and oftentimes I'll look back on somebody that I thought I knew and I'll think, wow, I didn't, I didn't know him at all. I, I didn't know her at all. Her story is so much more exciting now that I know maybe what she was like when she was 20 or what he was like in the early days of his career or what he was like when he was in the military. All of us have a story. You ever get a chance to tell yours? Maybe it's on a first date and just right out of the box, you happen to sit down with somebody that you just click and they're so interested in your story and before you realize it, you're spilling it all out. You're telling about your life and what it was like to grow up and where you went to high school and the friends that you hung out with and things that scared you and things that didn't go well. Or maybe you're on an airplane flight, you know, one of those long flights, maybe intercontinental flights and you know you're going to be there, say next to that person and never see them again. But just the conversation warms up, and before long, you're telling your story. You have a story. One thing about all of our stories, if we were to try to tell them today, there's a point at which they would all come to a stop. And that point would be about 9.54 on November 28, 2010. Because none of us knows where we'll be one hour from now. We don't know the future. We can tell our story up to this point, but we don't know what's coming. I think that's the very essence of worry. I am, I am notorious at worrying. I am the world's biggest warrior. I think that fingernails are a food group. <laughs> and the reason why I worry, I don't worry about what has happened. I worry about what might happen. The story that I don't know yet. And I think all of us have those kinds of fears about What's out there in the future? And, and, and what, what we start doing is we start guessing and we start factoring in what we can see today and anticipating what those, 
factors might add up to. That's a gobbledygook way of saying we look at the economy, we look at the weather, we look at the job market, we look at who's out there to date. You can just go on and on. You know what I'm talking about. We analyze our world and we say, based on what I see with the components of my life today, I think I might have an idea about the future. What this series is going to do for us, that is going to make it so very important, the greatest series we've ever had, is it's going to grab us by the shoulders and it's going to look us in the eye and say, that's not the point. Because the point is not your story and my story on its own, spinning out into oblivion with no guided, no guided organization. What is helpful for me, and, and you'll see this as we begin to talk today, is that God has a story, and God's story is eternal. And when I sync up with God, my story becomes eternal, and because I am part of God's story, which is totally predicted, my future becomes predictable. That, to me, is really exciting because of what I don't know. What we will look at today is what we can know. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take you to the book of Revelation because our study is going to come from Revelation. And I know that right out of the box that can freak a lot of us out, starting with me. And could I just say, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, but a lot of times the book of Revelation gets mispronounced. Have you ever heard anybody call it Revelations? It is not Revelations. You know, people have the idea, oh, it's about revelations. It's about, you know, God revealing things that haven't happened yet. And there's the mark of the beast and the tribulation. And God is giving us revelations about the future like you're sitting across from, you know, a fortune teller. No. First of all, we need to understand what the word revelation means. If you've ever heard the term apocalypse, apocalypse is just an English word drawn almost directly from the original. It's apokalumo, and it means to pull the veil away. So when you look at this book, it is God pulling the veil away. What is the title of the book? It is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is pulling the veil away from us, uh, for us from Jesus Christ so that we can see him as he really is. Revelation is not about the Antichrist. It's not about the tribulation. It's not about the seven seals. It's not about who the great whore of Babylon is, whatever that means. It is all about Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to learn. That's what we're going to see. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the Bible says, Write therefore the things you see, what they are, and what is to take place hereafter. That's the title of our series. God is saying, write down what's going to come in the future. So when you and I pick this book up, when we pick up the book of Revelation, this 66th book of the Bible, the last book, what we're picking up is what God tells us is going to happen in the future. By the way, Revelation is written differently than any other of the 65, other 65 books of the Bible. Revelation is a dictated book. God inspired the writers of the Bible, and with that inspiration, we have God's Word, and we also have their personality. Revelation is so distinct from that that it, if you read Revelation chapter 1, it is God dictating through an angel to John to just write the things that are going to happen hereafter. Now... I have to read verse 3 because we are coming off the Bless You series, and I just can't let it go, okay? Up till today, it was the greatest series I've ever done, so uh, I just got to read Revelation 1-3. For all of you who love Bless You, you're going you're gonna to see this, and, and it's going to be cool. Revelation 1-3, 
God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. <laughs> don't, don't take anything from the fact I'm doing a lot of reading today, okay? I'm going to read a lot of scripture today. I like this. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to the message and act like you haven't seen this before if you were part of bless you and obey what it says. Don't you see how the Bible is so cool? You can cut into it any place you want to cut into it. And the message is totally integrated. What did Deuteronomy say? Deuteronomy said if we embrace his authority over our lives, we get to enjoy his authority over blessing. If I obey God, he blesses me. And here we are in the last book of the Bible and God is saying, this one is so big. All you need to do is just listen and you'll get blessed. And whatever you find in the book of Revelation, it's all about the future. You obey it and God said, I'm going to bless you. And by the way, don't you, don't you like this? It says God blesses the one who reads the words to the church. And then he said he blesses all. You say, well, Mark, can God bless me? You know what all means in Greek? All. Today, I'm going to ask you for a favor. Today's talk is going to be kind of pedestrian. We're, we're going to kick it up next week, but uh, this morning, what I want to do is I want, to, I want you to understand something. God has a story, and, and God's story has been unfolding for thousands of years. See, the reason why this is really important to me is when I listen to people talk about heaven out in the broader culture, it's almost like it's like an add-on. You know, really this world is what it's all about, but then everybody dies. So God said, uh-oh, I got to come up with something for people who die so that they can keep on living. Maybe I'm just going to put them on clouds and make them, turn them all into angels and they're going to fly around and twang on harps. See, I mean, because here's the deal. After this world with all of its fantastic nature, if all God can come up with is float us around on clouds, turn us into angels and twang on harps, I got to tell you, it does sound like an add-on. But God doesn't work that way. God doesn't think like I think. God doesn't make it up as he goes. God has a plan. And when we think about heaven, what we need to understand is it is part of God's eternal plan. Long before there was a man, long before there was a woman, long before there was a world, this was part of God's incredible plan. So with this in mind, I want to do something today, and I'm going to ask for, your, I'm going to ask for some latitude. And again, I, I honestly, it's going to be a little pedestrian this morning because we're going to read a lot of verses but what I want you to see is that God has had an integrated plan from the very beginning of time, and I'm going to walk you all the way through until we get to the book of Revelation. One of the most important verses in your Bible is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, because for the first time, God spells out his plan. Up till this point, there have only been two human beings on the planet, Adam and Eve, and God said, I only have one rule. You can enjoy anything this here. Just one rule. Don't break it, because if you break my rule, it's not just a matter of you being in trouble. You're going to bring in the dark side. And really, here's what happened. You know, God told them what he wanted, and Satan came along. You remember Satan had rebelled against God before the world was created. He was a created angel, and he decided he wanted to be God, and God thumped him out of heaven. He came to earth. From that point on, he and God were in in conflict. And it's not an equal conflict because, as you know, when God gets ready to thump him out, he's going to thump him out. But what Satan couldn't beat God, but what he could do, he would get back at God through his creation. Have you ever seen people go through a custody battle and they get back at their ex through the kids? That's exactly what Satan wanted to do. 
God had put Adam and Eve in this perfect environment, had marvelous plans. God wanted a huge family, and God said, please, I'm just going to make this so easy. Just one rule. Don't break my rule. You don't need this tree anyway. You don't need the fruit on it. I got fruit everywhere. You can have anything you want. But Adam and Eve did something monumentally foolish. Adam and Eve went with Satan's plan. Now, here's the big thing, because a lot of us, are, we're a little, we're a little we, can't, we can't wrap our arms around hell, because it's like, how could a loving God send someone to a place that the Bible describes like hell? And that's, we, that's the wrong question to ask, because God never made hell for people. The Bible is so clear about this. Hell was created for Satan and his demons. I mean, the Bible just spells that out for us. That is why hell was made. But here is our problem. When Adam and Eve went with Satan's plan, not only did they go with his plan, they came under the umbrella of Satan's judgment. God didn't make hell for them. God made hell for Satan. But Satan was laughing at God all the way, saying, well, you may send me to hell, but I'm taking your, I'm taking your creation with me. And that's when God in Genesis 3.15 said, not so fast. Aren't you glad to worship a God who is so great that when we screw things up, it's not the end of the story? People say he's the God of second chances. He's the God of 5,000th chances and 10,000th chances. God said, not so fast. Do you know who God was talking to the very first time that God promised that Jesus was going to come into the world? I love this. He wasn't talking to Adam. He wasn't talking to Eve. You've narrowed it down. You know who he was talking to now. He was talking to Satan. Satan, just you know, he's standing there with, with, with crossed arms saying, I just blew up your world. And God is saying, not so fast. Let me tell you what's going to happen here. He said in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, you went through her. You seduced her into doing the wrong thing. No, I don't mean sex, into eating the, the fruit. You, you got her to do what you want her to do. And God, God said, I'm going to use her to get back at you. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike at his hill. I love that. God said, you may have won the battle, but you're not going to win the war. You may have pulled my creation through their volition under the umbrella of the judgment dedicated for you, but God has said, I'm not finished with this thing yet. I'm going to send somebody into this world, and that, that one I'm going to send is going to reclaim creation, reclaim the human beings that I've made. And he said, yeah, you're going to bruise this hill. In other words, God was saying, I know that when I send the, the offspring of the woman, by the way, that's why Jesus was born of a virgin. We'll see that in a moment. Seed of the woman. When he comes, God said, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. I think he crushed his head when he was bruising his heel on the cross, don't you think? Throughout the Old Testament, there are all these marvelous snippets, and I'm cherry-picking this morning. I can't even begin to give you this. I'm just trying to show you God's had a story. God's had a plan from the very beginning. It's a marvelous integrated plan. In Genesis 49, Jacob is lying on his deathbed. This is really an interesting prophecy to me because Jacob is going to start talking about kings that are going to be for the nation of Israel. At this point, the nation of Israel is one family with 12 boys. Each one of those, you know, Jacob starts prophesying about what's going to happen with each tribe. But he looks at Judah. 
And he starts talking to Judah. Listen to what he says. The scepter, what's a scepter? Scepter is the rod that a king holds, a symbol of his authority. The scepter shall not leave Judah. He'll keep a firm grip on the command staff until the ultimate ruler comes and the nations obey him. And it happened just like that. When God started the kingly line, they were all from the tribe of Judah. There, of course, was David, who was the first king from the tribe of Judah. This is why sometimes Jesus is called the son of David, because that's a, that's a reference to the fact that he has a right to the throne. Uh, and, and, but all the kings from, from, from David on came from the tribe of Judah. But king after king came and died and went. But notice this, it, it says the Judah will, will be the tribe that the kings come from until the ultimate ruler comes. And then it says... The nations, by, by definition, all the nations will obey him. Well, by the way, the ultimate ruler has made an appearance. We know who he is. He just hasn't set up his kingdom yet, which he will do, and we'll see that in the book of Revelation. Isn't that cool? This is Genesis 49. Here's a man lying on his deathbed, looking at his son Judah, saying, buddy, all the kings are going to come from you until the big one comes. And Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, you know, the writers in the Bible, they just wrote what God told them to write. If I'm Isaiah, I take my glasses off and say, wait a minute, God, you know, did I really get this? Tell me again. Look at uh, Isaiah 7:14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, a virgin will conceive a child. Through the years, people will push back and they say, do you know that's impossible? Hence the point. That, I mean, it says a sign. That means this is going to be something that doesn't happen all the time. How could God get a human being without a father and mother? He got the first one here without either. We'll save that for another day. Okay, look at this. The virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This baby is very different. A lot of us have had babies that we love very much, but I don't think any of us could hold our baby and say, this is God. No. In fact, even other religions don't even try that one. But this is what God is saying. I, and remember, it all goes back to Genesis 3, where God is saying, not so fast, Satan. You think you've got my creation. You've won the battle, but you're going to lose the war because I'm going to bring my champion in here, and he's going to be the sin of the woman. He's not going to have a human father. And when he comes, he's going to be king eventually. And he's going to be born of a virgin. 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah picked up a pen and even told us where it was going to happen. He writes, Oh, you, Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, the one whose origins are from the distant past. Wow, I'll tell you, that stretches my head. Because Micah is saying, He's going to come in the future, but his origins, he's already come, he's already here, he's been here for, for, from the origins or from the distant past. Ladies and gentlemen, always remember this, Jesus is not a man who became God, he's a God who became human. He's a God who came to our world. You know, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas just a few days away, Wednesday's December the 1st, which by the way, that's first Wednesday, we'll have a great time. But I mean, you know, Christmas isn't just a holiday, it's a season. You know, we light the lights, we buy, you know, spend billions of dollars on presents. There's a whole genre of music. Why do we do that? Okay, I'll hand you the fact that our, our, our world has sort of forgotten about Jesus, and it just freaks me out when people 
tend to celebrate Christmas and they leave Jesus out of it. If something that really gets under my skin is when somebody says Merry Xmas. And I always think, look, if you want to take something out of the word, take the mess out and leave Jesus in it. But that's for another sermon too. Why do we do that? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, if you, were, if you were an alien, not that they exist, but if you were an alien and you came into our world at Christmas time and you saw all the lights and then heard the music and saw people rushing around on Black Friday spending money to buy gifts, you would have to say something happened here. These people are commemorating something. Well, the, what we're commemorating is that a ruler came whose origins have been from the distant past. And he came, isn't it cool? He came from Bethlehem. That'd be like saying the Messiah was born in Medicine Lodge. Nothing against Medicine Lodge, just just small town. Again, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah picked up the pen and he wrote, For unto us a child is born, a son is given to us, the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Look at this. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and peace will never end. I mean, God is saying he's coming. Think about this. Before Jesus was born, we were told that he's coming, and things were said about Jesus that haven't happened yet, because honestly, his government is not going on right now. The peace that he brings is certainly not happening in our world, but it will happen. And Isaiah was just taking the telescope, and he was looking, and he's saying, hey, he's coming, and when he comes, he's not just going to be called a great religious leader. He is the mighty God, and of his kingdom, it'll never end. I want to move now to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Daniel is a great book. In fact, if you want to understand Revelation, you almost have to have the book of Daniel. Daniel is almost like the key to Revelation. Daniel was given incredible, in fact, probably more prophecies about the Antichrist are in the book of Daniel than any other book. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, you'll need the book of Daniel. Daniel was a young Jewish man, as you know, who was carried away into Babylon, carried away captive as a young man. And while he was there, God did a lot of work in his life. He became very effective. In fact, he actually became probably the most uh, highly trusted administrator in four different kingdoms, none of them Jewish. But God did something with Daniel's prophecies that, to me, stand out. And it makes them, you know, there are a lot of prophecies in the Bible that intrigue me. But what I love about Daniel is that God gave him something he almost never gives a prophet. He gave him a timetable. Very rarely does God give a prophecy and he says it's going to happen in this timing because he wants us to take him by faith and to always be looking for him to fulfill his word. I honestly think that the last part of Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most important parts of your Bible. But anyway, long story short, Daniel is telling, he's telling his writers about the anointed one coming. And, and, and he gives them, and we'll talk about this one week, so I won't, I won't belabor it right now, but he, he talks about 77s. In other words, there are 70 sets of seven. And what those are, they're sets of seven years. So basically, it's 490 years. And Daniel said at the end of 490 years, God's kingdom is going to be totally established. Well, now that gives us a little problem right now because we're a long way past 490 years and God's kingdom is not fully established. I'll explain all this in a coming message. But what Daniel did point out was that at the end of 483 years, the clock would stop, leaving seven years. But I want to talk about what Daniel was saying would happen at the end of that 483rd year. Listen to this. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. 
Hey, I'll, I'll tell you what I believe. You know, we're entering the Christmas season. We all know the crash and nativity scene, and we all see the wise men that come and so on and so forth. You know why the wise men came? I, if I'm wrong when I get to heaven, I promise you I'll apologize, but I'm going to bet next week's lunch money I'm right on this, if I bet next week's lunch money. I think these guys were influenced by Daniel. And what did they have? They had Daniel's timetable. And Daniel, no doubt, had taught them Numbers 24, 17 that talks about the coming of Jesus being associated with a star. And I think that when those wise men saw that phenomenon of the heavens and they had their clock that Daniel had given them, they said, it's time to go, guys. Let's go find him. But what makes this prophecy so important to me is Daniel said to everybody, this is going to be amazing because from the very beginning of time, God has said, look, it's not over. I'm going to send my champion. He's going to come through the seed of the woman. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah, and he's going to eventually rule the world. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And everybody's saying, woohoo, he's coming. And Daniel said, wait a minute. At the end of 483 years, he's going to die, and it's going to look like he didn't accomplish anything. Did you know that was in the Bible? Guys, I got to tell you, I spend a lot of time with people that are spiritually unresolved and many of them of different religions because I just love having friends that, that think differently from me and that I can have give and take with. And every once in a while, my, my well-meaning friends who are atheists or maybe from another religion, they'll kind of poke gentle fun at me and they'll say, hey, didn't, didn't your guy, didn't he get executed? Your guy, I mean... I mean, look at him. I mean, he, he was born in Podunkville, and he hung around with 12 guys, all losers, you know, fishermen, bomb makers, and then got himself in trouble with the powers that were and got crucified and, you know, never wrote any books and didn't do any long traveling and all that. Did, did, wasn't your guy kind of a failure? I've been asked that. But it's all part of the plan. Daniel said, yeah, he's coming, and he's going to die, and it's going to look like he accomplished nothing. And, 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 and a thousand years before Jesus was born, Dan, David, King David, picked up his pen and wrote in the Psalms. And guys, I got to tell you, Psalm 22 is one of the most important chapters in your Bible. Most of us know Psalm 23. As important as Psalm 23 is, it pales in comparison to Psalm 22. In fact, Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are all part of a trilogy. Psalm 24 is the resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 23 is, I think it's the funeral service for Jesus. And Psalm 22 is, of David, is like David was standing at the cross with legal padded hand just recording the, the, what it was like to be crucified. In fact, Paul said, I delivered unto you the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. Psalm 22. I'll just cherry pick here. Verse 14. My life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint, which is what would happen if you were hanging on a cross. My heart is like wax melting within me. You know Jesus died from basically a heart that exploded. That was revealed when they tossed the spear in his side and blood and serum came out. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember when Jesus said, I thirst? A person who was dying of crucifixion would become greatly dehydrated. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. You could if you were hanging on a cross. You could see your rib bones. My enemies stare and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Sound familiar? Oh, I know what a skeptic is like. Well, hey, Mark, you know, 
the people that crucified Jesus, they knew this stuff was in the Bible and they just made it come out that way. Excuse me, wasn't Jesus crucified by the Romans? I mean, you think Romans didn't know anything about Psalm 22? They wouldn't have known Psalm 22 from Beowulf. No. What's so interesting to me is, because here's the thing, if David had maybe just guessed, and he didn't have Daniel 9, so he didn't know that Jesus was going to die. He didn't know he was going to die appearing to accomplish nothing, but let's just say David was able to guess it. David was a Jew. How do the Jews execute people? They executed people by stoning them, throwing rocks until they were dead. So if David's going to guess that Jesus is going to die, and he's writing the story, how's he going to write it? He was going to say he was stoned to death, but instead David wrote, they pierced my hands and my feet 300 years before the Carthaginians invented crucifixion. God has a plan. God has a story. It's integrated and is zipping on. But what's the deal? In God's plan, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you and me, oftentimes we follow God's plan and it has us shaking our head, doesn't it? I mean, we're thinking, wow, God, I thought I was listening to you, but it's not making any sense. Thankfully, we have the most important chapter of the Old Testament. Because although it appeared that he accomplished nothing, what he did was huge. But he was pierced. David said they pierced his hands and feet. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's past to follow our own. Yet the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. It might have looked to the casual Roman observer that day when Jesus was crucified that he died accomplishing nothing. But what did he do? He crushed Satan's head on the cross because the one thing that had put you and me underneath Satan's judgment was sin. Adam and Eve sinned and you and I have added, our, added to the collection. What did Jesus do? Jesus went and retrieved all that sin that Adam and Eve committed and all the sin that you and I have committed. All the sin that would send us to hell, place that God didn't intend for us to go in the first place. Jesus took all that on the cross and he took it on himself, which is why when Jesus finished dying on the cross, he cried out, tetelestai in Greek, which means we have it in English. It is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. The price had been paid. My life versus Colossians 2.14, which tells me that Jesus took my sins and his sins were nailed to, my, nailed to his cross. You know, when a person died with crucifixion, they would put the crime on top of the cross that person was guilty for, guilty of. So that, let's just say that person was guilty of robbery. And, and, and if you passed a cross and you saw somebody dying on a cross and you looked up there and saw robbery, you would say, okay, that guy's paying the bill for robbery. And when he died, they'd pull that off the cross as if to say it's been paid for. The price for robbery has been paid for. Roman government is satisfied. When Jesus died, they didn't know what to put on his cross because they couldn't find him guilty of anything. And they didn't really know what to put in there. Pilate took a crack at it, but in Colossians 2, my favorite verse in the Bible, God tells us what was nailed to Jesus' cross. It was the bill for your sin. It was the bill for my sin so that after Jesus died on the cross, God could rip it off the cross and say it's paid in full. Accomplished nothing. He accomplished everything. 
Who got to run the anchor on the relay? Of all people, it was Job. I mean, isn't it cool that when God picks somebody to talk about Jesus rising from the grave, he picked Job? And Job was allowed to do it in some of the worst days of his life. I mean, Job, like some of us, you know, we don't know what the future holds. And, and Job's world was spinning out of control and didn't have any answers. And, and the worst part of what he was going through in chapter 19, Job was allowed to give the prophecy of Jesus rising again. And it's in Job 19, verse 25. He said, still I know that God lives. Some of us remember an old translation that says, I know my Redeemer lives. The one who gives me back my life and eventually he'll take his stand on the earth and I'll see him. I'll see God with my very own eyes. Job's like, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I may die, but I know one thing. I know that when God's champion comes, he's not going to stay dead. He's going to take his stand. How cool. Well, I got six minutes to preach the message. That's all introduction. And I told you it's going to be kind of pedestrian today, but we'll kick it up next week. book of Revelation. Revelation happens about 60 years after Jesus went back to heaven. And it happened at a really bad time. The Roman government was persecuting the Christians. Nero had allowed the city of Rome to burn. And when the pressure got on him for allowing it to happen, he needed a scapegoat and he blamed the Christians. And um, Christians came under heavy persecution. Many of them were killed. John at this time was probably about 90 years old. He had been the youngest of Jesus' disciples, and he and Jesus were personally close. In fact, so close that John, when he wrote about himself, he always called himself the one Jesus loved. He would never use his name. He would just say, I guess he was saying, I was his favorite. Maybe John did that just to torque Peter. I don't know. But uh... John was, I think, like a kid brother to Jesus. You ever have a friend that's just like a kid brother, a kid sister? They just get what you're about. And it was so big that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked down and saw John and Mary standing there, and he said, John, from now on, I want you to be Mary's son, and mom, I want you to look at John from now on, you know, depend on him. Boy, you turn your mother over to somebody when you're dying, and you care a lot for that person. Now John is like 90 years of age. They've tried to kill him. The Romans tried to boil him in oil, and he survived that. I don't know exactly how he did that. He's, he, he can't even hardly stand on stage anymore to deliver talks. And from what we can tell, they carried him up. And John just sat before his crowd of people like New Springers who were so anxious to learn about Jesus. And this 90-year-old guy would tell them all the stories about Jesus and what he said and what he did. And it was just awesome to listen to him talk. And the Romans just said, we can't even have that. And so what they did was they banished him to the island of Patmos. Now, I'm a church kid. I grew up in church. And when I used to hear about John being on the island of Patmos, I used to think, well, that's not so bad. You know, tropical breezes, swinging on a hammock, sipping on a lemonade. You know, I just kind of had that picture in my mind. Come to the islands. I just figured that's where John was. Hey, it couldn't be more wrong. Patmos was a little rock pile in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Turkey. Four by six miles, nothing there but a quarry. Basically, I think the Romans, I think they had a little fun with John. They said, we're going to leave that old man out there and he's going to die of rheumatism. In the cold. By the way, wouldn't you like to still be giving the devil fits when you're 90 years of age? Man, John, 90 years old, still racking up points. Rock on. I love that. 
He said, it was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. John said, you know, I would have liked to have been at my church. You know, I would have liked for my church to be with me, but I couldn't be at church. So John said, I was just watching New Spring on, on streaming. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> he said, I was just there with the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, John said, I didn't anticipate this. I, I, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see. We already know the things are going to come out hereafter. Verse 12, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was somebody like the Son of Man. John said, it, was, it looked like Jesus, but I'd never seen him look like this. Look at this. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Now, probably no human being other than maybe Mary, probably no other human being in the world knew Jesus like John knew Jesus. He'd been with him every day of his life, and yet John, when he turned around, he said, I'd never seen him like this. And that's what the revelation is all about. It's all about the next time Jesus comes. He is not coming to be the humble, itinerant carpenter from Nazareth. He is coming back to be king of kings and lord of lords, and he's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. I preach this whole message just to get to this one line. But... He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Don't you find it interesting that the first thing the glorified son of God said to one of his own in regard to the future, long before he told him about the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets and the tribulations, I think the first thing that really stands out to me, this is what this whole message is about. When you look at the future, you're Jesus Your champion, your king says to you, don't be afraid. It's settled. I mean, all the prophecies about, you guys don't remember this name. I don't remember him. But Babe Ruth used to be a home run hitter for the Yankees many, many years ago. And many of us have watched that old black and white clip of that moment where Babe stepped up to the plate at Yankee Stadium. And he pointed to the left outfield as if to say, I'm going to hit it right over there. And he took the bat and bang, he hit it right where he said he was going to hit it. And that's legend stuff. But God, that's what God is doing, but in much more powerful way. God is saying, well, hit it right over there. Uh, it's not over, Satan. I'm going to bring my champion. He's going to be the seed of the woman, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and the timing's going to be there, and it's going to look like he didn't accomplish anything, but he's going to accomplish everything. And Job, you, you, you come to bat and say, he's going to rise from the grave, and oh, by the way, I mean, basically God is saying, well, hit it right over there. And Jesus comes along and says to John, we're right on schedule, buddy. Don't be afraid. Why? He said, I'm the first and the last. In effect, I'm sure John was nervous about the Romans and what they were doing to him. Jesus said to John, don't worry about the Romans. I was here. I was the very first thing that was here. I was here before there ever was a world. And long after this world is gone, Jesus said, I'll be here. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I'm alive forever and ever. John, you don't have to fear death. And Jesus said, and I hold the keys of death in the grave. <laughs> Sometime back, I was on a trip. I'm a control freak. I don't know if you are or not. I'm a benevolent control freak, but I'm a control freak. And, and on this trip, I was in a van with a whole lot of people, and we're doing a lot of good ministry and things, but the only problem was I didn't have any, 
input necessarily on where we were going, how long we were going to stay, where we were going to eat. I mean, I was just part of a big group. And so, I, you know, I was like in the back seat of the van. And I was just going where everybody else went. That was okay. I was glad for what we got done. But I remember getting home. And I wasn't even prepared for this. I remember reaching into my jeans and filling my keys. What a wonderful feeling that was. I was back in control. Not really. Keys are a sign of access and control. Jesus said to John, hey, you don't need to be afraid because I now hold the keys of death in the grave. Because at one point, you know, the first human beings, they surrendered over the evil one. And they came underneath his judgment. But I went and I took all those sins and I bore them on the cross. Three days later, I stepped out of my grave under my own power. And as of right now, I hold the keys of death in the grave. You know, Jesus, you don't have to worry. You know, when I study for a talk like today's, I ask myself questions just to make sure I'm not missing anything. And I try to ask contrarian questions because I don't want to, I don't want to leave something hanging. So I knew that my talk today was about God's plan, how that God has had everything under control and that my future is secure. And I started wondering, was there ever a time in God's plan where the whole thing was in jeopardy? My future in God's plan, in jeopardy. And I realized there were two moments. One moment happened nearly 2,000 years ago in a little garden outside the city of Jerusalem. It was hours before Jesus would be crucified. And he was all by himself and the cold winds of Calvary were beginning to blow on him and he knew what he was in for. He knew the suffering, he knew the physical suffering, he knew the emotional suffering, he knew what it was going to be like that in the worst part of his trauma, soul trauma and body trauma, that the father would turn his back and Jesus would be left to die alone. And in this moment in the garden, Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. At that moment, if Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane stands to his feet and says, it's all over, guys, trip's over, he's God. He isn't anything wrong. He doesn't owe it to us to die for us. He certainly could have done it. He could have said, Father, this is it. I'm coming home. Trip aborted. In that moment of supreme jeopardy, your Savior kept on his knees and he said, but it isn't what I want. It's your plan. It's been here for the ages. Your plan be done. Now we're down to one. The other moment when you and I are in jeopardy is that moment when we understand that it isn't about religion, it isn't about joining a church, it's not about being good. It's all about God's plan. It's all about his son. It's all about his king. He did it for us. And we understand the good news that if by faith we will put our confidence in him and invite him into our life, we can have our sins washed away. We can have our name written in the census book of heaven. And it's free. It's a gift of God. But if at that moment we say, well, it can't be that easy and I don't understand why bad things happen to good people. And if God explains everything to me, then maybe I'll give him the time of day. See, at that moment, everything is in jeopardy because everything God's done for you up to that moment, if you turn him away, you come back over here And you stay under the umbrella of judgment that our first parents put themselves under. There was a moment in my life where I said to myself, 
I can't do without Jesus. I can't live without him. I don't have any hope without him. And I prayed and I invited him into my life. And I can tell you this, that whatever jeopardy I experience in this world, I have no jeopardy associated with God's eternal plan. I can take the words of Jesus to John. Don't be afraid because I now am part of God's eternal story. My story is synced up with him. When he tells his story, he's telling my story. I'm going to ask you a question today. Have you ever committed your life to Jesus? Have you ever invited him into your life? Have you ever taken away that second point of jeopardy? If not, I want to give you a chance right now to pray and invite Jesus into your life. He's just looking for a yes. It's a gift. The only thing to do to get a gift is, is to understand, understand that it's been offered and receive it. Why don't you pray with me right now? Everybody pray, please. If you've already received the gift, pray for those who are going to be receiving it in the next few seconds. If you're here today and you're saying, yes, Mark, I'm ready to clear up that second point of jeopardy, then just pray with me. I'm going to give you a prayer. These aren't magic words. These are words that just call out to God. They're just words that tell God, yes. But I'm going to pray it slowly because the important thing is that you mean it and that it comes from your heart. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I've sinned and I can't save myself. But I know you have a plan and your plan brought your son Jesus into the world to die for me. And he arose from the grave. I receive him as my savior and my king. Forgive me and make me God's child. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.